The historical record between 1639 and 1642 in Maryland is pretty sparse, and the practical upshot of that for us is that this will be the last episode of the Maryland Foundation series as we survey what we do know about the time period. It kind of works, though, because you can see the problems pile up in a pretty dramatic way as Maryland starts to get sucked into the English Civil War era. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. But let's start with a quick overview of 1638 and the events which were occurring in the background of the last episode. Because although 1638 was a politically important year for the colony, politics were far from the only important thing going on at the time. First, seeing the continual struggle to keep non-Puritans in control of Virginia, Baltimore had actually written privately to the King's Secretary of State, Francis Windebank, raising the idea that he himself be appointed governor. This would help with the Maryland issue, and Baltimore said that he thought he could increase the king's revenue from Virginia by £8,000 a year, purely through economic growth without imposing additional taxes or duties. But the idea went no further than that for obvious reasons. Baltimore was, however, able to keep Kemp in office as Secretary of Virginia, and soon the king sent Harvey back as governor of Virginia, but Harvey was almost immediately pushed to the side again and was soon replaced by Francis Wyatt. And in England, Clobbering Company made one last attempt to confirm its rights to Kent Island by filing a lawsuit. They complained to Secretary John Cook about the removal of servants and equipment that they'd paid for, and King Charles wrote to Baltimore and asked him not to press the Kent Island issue until further decision. Of course, Evelyn and the Marylanders had already taken control of Kent and Palmer's Island months before. Calvert had claimed the land, issued surveys, appointed officials, or allowed their election— dismantled everything owned by Clobbery and Company, and erected his own fort on Palmer's Island. The issue had already been pressed, and Calvert wasn't going to introduce a whole bunch of new problems by conceding the advances that he'd already made, especially when the case was likely to be decided in Baltimore's favor anyway. And soon, it was decided, again, unsurprisingly, fully in Baltimore's favor, Claiborne then returned to the Chesapeake to try to demand that the Maryland government return his property, but the attainder they'd passed meant that he would be arrested if he even set foot in the colony. Claiborne and Matthews then formed a plan to recruit 1,500 settlers from Virginia and Bermuda to establish a plantation in Patawomic hoping to use sheer force of numbers and public sentiment to make up for the illegality of their grant. But that plan fell apart so quickly that it's almost unmentioned in historical transcripts. In summer 
A bunch of colonists died, including council member Jerome Hawley, Robert Winter, and two of the priests. As we know from last episode, White also nearly died, but felt that the priests had come up with an effective way to treat the disease. And back in England, Evelyn's father died, so he went home to take care of his estate. Late summer, though, brought Maryland's biggest religious battle to date, which could have created serious problems for Maryland's Catholic leadership in Virginia and England. The event in question happened at the home of a man named William Lewis. Now, some resources say that William Lewis was someone who was an overseer for Cornwallis's property, and some say that he was an overseer for the priest's property, and yet others say that he was a landowner in St. Mary's, but it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that Lewis was a devoted Catholic, and the people he conflicted with, named Robert Sedgrave and Francis Gray, were Puritans, one an indentured servant and the other a carpenter and lay preacher. One day, Lewis walked into a room of his house where Sedgrave and Gray were loudly reading sermons by the most popular Elizabethan Puritan preacher named Henry Smith, also known as Silver-Tongued Smith. Smith had published a few books of sermons, one of which was entitled God's Arrows Against Atheists, which argued in part against atheism, but also drove home the point that Catholicism was a lie of the devil, no better than atheism. And the specific passage that they were reading said that the Pope was an antichrist and the Jesuits were anti-Christian ministers. Lewis felt that they were intentionally reading particularly provocative passages loudly to offend him, and he angrily told them that what they were reading was a falsehood and came from the devil as all lies did, and that he that wrote it was an instrument of the devil and that they should neither keep nor read such books. Sedgrave and Gray then drew up a petition to Harvey, who was at least nominally governor of Virginia at that point, and were getting as many Protestants as they could to sign it. The petition was for a redress of grievances, with the grievances being that Lewis had said scandalous and abusive things about their ministers. He had said that Protestant clergy were ministers of the devil, that their books were made by instruments of the devil, and that he was forbidding his servants to keep or read any Protestant texts. This was Maryland's worst nightmare. Maryland could not afford to be painted as a Catholic colony oppressing Protestants. Maryland had never even overtly admitted that it was a Catholic colony, and Hawley had only admitted that Mass was celebrated publicly under official interrogation. As far as anyone else was concerned, Maryland was merely a colony in which Catholics were allowed to live, thanks to a high degree of separation of church and state. If this petition reached Virginia, though, 
that would all collapse. But before the petition could be delivered, Lewis himself told Cornwallis what was going on, and Cornwallis pushed the council to try the case. They would examine the petition, and they would question the witnesses. The rest of the council agreed. Sedgrave and Gray reiterated their version of events to the council, and they said that they'd only written the petition after complaining to Copley, who they said had agreed with them that Lewis had a tendency toward an ill-governed zeal, and who had agreed that Lewis should be published, but who hadn't stopped his behavior. That, of course, doesn't answer the question of why they went to the Virginia government before that of Maryland. Lewis then put forth his side of the story and emphasized that he'd always allowed his servants to have whatever books they wanted. He just didn't want them to read them in a way that was deliberately meant to offend or disturb him in his own house. At the end of the day, though, it didn't matter who was telling the truth. If the council let Lewis off the hook or investigated Sedgrave and Gray, Maryland as a whole would be scrutinized about the issue, and in a worst-case scenario, there could be a Protestant rebellion in the colony supported by Matthews and Claiborne's Virginia faction. They needed to make a statement regarding Lewis's behavior. The council did disagree about appropriate sentencing and punishment, though. Cornwallis emphasized that Lewis had disturbed the peace and violated the colony's policy of suppressing religious disputes, and for that he favored a simple fine and no further punishment. It would make a statement and let Lewis go on his way. Luger, though, went further, saying that Lewis had exceeded his rights by forbidding the people to read books which were legal according to English law, and that even if that accusation weren't true, that Lewis had clearly had a history of saying offensive things and provoking disputes, and for this reason, they should both fine him and impose a security for good behavior. Yet again, Calvert sided with Luger. They fined Lewis 500 pounds of tobacco, which translated to about 1.5 pounds sterling at the time, which I'll again put in perspective by saying that 40 pounds was the average annual income for a non-gentry landowner. And they told Lewis that they would fine him three times as much if he ever violated religious peace and freedom again. And that sees us through the end of 1638. They then passed that final code of laws, that original Bill of Rights we discussed last episode. In 1639, though, attacks by the Susquehannocks and Nanticokes started to become more frequent. The Susquehannocks had been in the process of filling the void left by the Powhatan, but now these smaller tribes were entering the English sphere of influence instead. In the face of increased attack, the Marylanders started to really work to fortify their settlements. They started to push for harder trading of the citizens, and the council authorized a raid on Susquehannock territory. 
With Holly now dead, his place on the council had been filled by Giles Brent, who was the brother of the two nuns whose property had been threatened last episode. They also officially declared that the Patuxents, who were a particularly vulnerable tribe, would be under English protection. But the threat from Susquehannocks and Nanticokes continued. Of course, within England, 1639 was an important year because it was the year of the First Bishops' War, which would ultimately lead the king to call a new parliament in 1640, putting an end to the era of personal rule and swiftly pulling England into civil war. And in 1640, Claiborne tried again to reestablish himself at Kent Island, giving a power of attorney to George Scoville to act on his behalf, because he would still be arrested if he went to Maryland himself. Calvert and the council denied his claims, saying that his remaining property had been confiscated as punishment for crimes of piracy and murder. Also in 1640, Father White recorded the most dramatic, most famous, and in many ways the most important conversion story in the colony so far. It involved Tyek, the leader of the Pascatawes, whose land stretched from St. Mary's to Susquehannock territory. White and Altum went to visit him on one of their regular missionary trips, and Tyek immediately welcomed them, inviting them to stay in his house. Tyek explained to White that he'd had a dream about people approaching who would love his people and confer great blessings upon them, and soon after they'd arrived, Tyek felt sick. None of his doctors were able to heal him, but White did a bloodletting and gave him some English medicine, and the Werowance almost immediately recovered. At that point, Tyek agreed to be baptized along with his wife and daughter, and White worked to teach him the details of scripture as well as the English language. For Tyek, this was a thoroughly enjoyable intellectual experience. Over the weeks, as he discussed things with White, he also grew more and more convinced that White's interpretation of God was true. At one point, he rather shockingly kicked a stone which his people had formerly worshipped, saying that this was nothing but the humblest of God's works. And the missionaries had been thorough in their work. Most of the onlookers actually applauded the action. So there was a gradual shift in mindset. One day, though, Tyek acted as an interpreter while White ministered to one of his subjects who was about to be executed for murder. That man chose to be baptized, and as he was being executed, he was completely calm, not just stoic, but simply at ease. After seeing this, Tyek told White that he wanted to be baptized as soon as possible. But White said that they should wait to plan an appropriately ornate celebration. They built a chapel for the occasion, brought over Maryland's leading citizens, and baptized Tyek and his family, and then gave Tyek and his wife 
a Catholic wedding ceremony. For their Christian names, Tyak and his wife chose Charles and Mary, then Calvert, Tyak, or now Charles, Luger and others carried a big cross while Copley and another priest preceded them, chanting the litany of the Virgin, and then they ceremonially raised the cross to commemorate the occasion. After the ceremony, lots of other people were baptized, and Tyak sent his daughter to St. Mary's to go to school. He died about a year later, and his daughter took over leadership of the tribe, and under her leadership, more tribe members sent their children to be educated by the English, and nearby tribes followed suit. Altum died soon after this, but news of this event helped White recruit more priests to come to the colony. The Pascatawes were also a strategically located tribe, so the conversion helped increase Maryland's security. And after the conversion, White continued to spend a lot of time there, seemingly preferring to live among the Indians to living among the English. The conflict about church and state hadn't gone away, though. In the face of increasing Puritan power within England, and himself a fairly moderate Catholic, Baltimore started working to rein the Jesuits in. His secretary pushed him to expel the Jesuits and replace them with secular clergy, and Baltimore did start to move in that direction. In 1641, Baltimore issued a new set of conditions of plantations, which said that no land should be held by anyone, including the church, without special license from the proprietary. The new conditions also made it illegal for priests to live with the Indians and put Maryland priests under secular law. The priests protested, but with no success, and even the English Jesuit leader, Father Moore, ordered them to give up their lands and obey Baltimore's orders. Then, Baltimore wrote to Rome, asking the leadership there to replace the Jesuits with secular clergy. Copley was furious about all of this, saying that the Jesuits had helped to build Maryland and that Catholicism had been the reason that people had moved to Maryland in the first place. The only thing that made Maryland a better place to live than England or other colonies was the ability to worship as a Catholic, and Baltimore was threatening that by putting the church under the state. Cornwallis threatened to leave the colony entirely, and Baltimore entered into a full-blown feud with the Jesuits. The feud became so bitter that even Governor Calvert urged his brother to ease up and repair his relations with the Jesuits, but Baltimore refused and told Calvert that the Jesuits had criticized his leadership too, and he went on to explain that by the law of nature, he had the right to defend his temporal property, even from people who sought his spiritual well-being. Those were pretty radical words for a 17th century person, particularly a Catholic. And while the Catholics battled over the future of Maryland's Catholic Church, 
Protestants were gradually increasing their majority in the colony. Some moved there, especially artisans, and others' terms of indentured servitude came to an end. As their numbers increased, they began pushing for some of the political reforms which were being demanded in England, and this put the colony even more on edge at a time when England's lenience towards Catholics was rapidly coming to an end. A new session of the Assembly in 1641 passed three laws, one of which imposed a death penalty for any servant who tried to leave the colony, something which was shocking even by the standards of the time period, and which was most likely passed in an attempt to stop the political agitation of the type that said Grave and Grey were trying to provoke. The Burgesses pushed for greater control of the government by the lower house by giving it veto power over the upper house, which was the council. And they also opposed fighting the Susquehannocks, who were attacking more and more aggressively. Giles Brent, lieutenant general under Cornwallis, told them that they simply had no choice but to fight because war had already been declared on them by the Susquehannocks. Once again, this reflected developments in England, where Parliament had just used rebellion in Ireland to vie for control of England's train bands or militia, and won. The Maryland Lower House could easily have been vying for control over the colony's militia, rather than leaving it under the control of the Lord Proprietor. Meanwhile, the upper house of the legislature proposed a law which would refine the colony's democratic system and hopefully reduce conflict within the government. Provisions included things like, none shall use indecent, taunting, or reviling words to the naming or impersonating of another member of the house, and no one shall speak more than once per day about any given bill without permission from the lieutenant governor. So clearly they were trying to rein in an increasingly chaotic legislature. There were plenty more bills passed and plenty more debated, most of them too dry for even this podcast, but many of which imitated political developments in England as Parliament entered the final pre-war stages of battle with the king. They wanted the legislature to have more control and the Lord Proprietor less over pretty much every aspect of running the colony, including its judicial proceedings. They passed laws dictating sentencing and connected them explicitly to the laws of England, which everyone at that point knew were rapidly changing. And as we watch Maryland start to collapse internally, yet more external pressure came in the form of Dutch, Swedish, and New Englanders settling within the bounds of Baltimore's patent. To argue for their right, the New Englanders who came from New Haven referred to a now void patent, which had been based on the borders of Gorges's old Virginia company of Plymouth. 
In other words, the settlement was thoroughly illegal and most likely again done with the goal of provoking conflict with Maryland. In 1641, anti-Catholic sentiment was at a new peak because of rebellion in Ireland and Puritan opposition to the king's wife and Arminian advisors. So thanks to timing alone, they stood a good chance of doing more damage to Maryland than Claiborne ever had. Conveniently, though, Maryland never needed to address the issue of the New Haven settlers because the Dutch drove them out instead. But that still left the Dutch and Swedes who laid claim to the territory. Perhaps the one good thing for Maryland was the arrival of William Berkeley as the new governor of Virginia. Berkeley was a Protestant, but a fairly conservative one, the staunchest of royalists, and thoroughly anti-Puritan. At the same time, though, Claiborne was appointed treasurer of Virginia for life. So, as Civil War loomed, Maryland found itself in an increasingly untenable situation. Catholics versus Catholics. Catholics versus Puritans, English versus Dutch and Swedes, and English allies versus Susquehannocks and Nanticokes. Plus, as the king raised his standard at Edge Hill, there was less hope from home and increased likelihood of damaging interference. And on that note, I'll end the story of Maryland's foundation. It's not only the story of the dream of a group of colonists and the reality of how it played out. It's also the story of the beginning of troubles which would plague the colony for decades or longer. I've tried to end these series with a sense of conclusion and a big picture reflection on the unique characteristics and culture of each colony at the end of these stories. But none of that really applies here. We'd have to take this story through the English Civil War and beyond to try to reach the same sort of endpoint that we've had in other series. But that's part of what makes Marilyn's story so fascinating. Next week, I won't be releasing an episode, but if you want your weekly dose of early colonial American history, I was a guest on the latest episode of Steve Guerra's podcast, Beyond the Big Screen, which uses movies to drive discussions about various topics. In this episode, we'll talk about the story of Jamestown and the 2005 movie A New World, starring Colin Farrell. And that's actually perfect timing, because after next week, I'll be starting a series on Virginia during the reign of Charles I, looking at what happened between the time that Virginia became a crown colony and the English Civil War and exploring the other side of this whole Claiborne mess. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week. <laughs>